When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's a new season. It's a new season. season. Listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast, we're here with season five. Season five. This is insane. It's been insane. Yeah, it's crazy that we've done five seasons of this and no one has tried to stop us yet. No one's tried to stop us, including our moms. Pretty ridiculous. The moms are not like, sweetheart, maybe you should just, uh, it's a fun hobby, sweetheart, but you're not getting any, you know, no. Our moms are very supportive. Anyways, sorry, go ahead, Chris. No, it's great stuff. So this season we thought we would do things. So we've, we've kind of tried to structure each season in different ways. Last season, we tried to do it on interesting historical figures in science. And that's why we did series on people like Rachel Carson or Robert Bigelow or, um, You know, we we tried to kind of structure things around individuals, people whose stories we thought were really interesting. This season, by popular demand, we are going to do a season centered around scientific theory. And in particular cases where scientific theory was wrong. Because science is a liar sometimes. Because why not come out of 2020 with that assumption? No, I'm joking. Science, it's going to be wonderful. Science is science is not wrong. It's neither. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, sometimes it's wrong. Yes. <laughs> and then that's, and really, you know, we're jerks. And so 2020 happened and people were like, oh, you got to take the vaccine and everything else. And you should take the vaccine, of course. But we thought it'd be oh kind God, of fun yes. yeah. to talk about cases. Because here's the thing. If you only talk about the cases where science is right, you're ignoring a lot of good data. And in fact, the Mm -hmm. most important data from scientific studies. And so that's what we're going to talk about. And so today, today's episode is going to be specifically on what is the scientific method? What makes something a scientific theory? And what is the foundation of the thinking style that we're going to be talking about all season long? So put on your thinking caps, buckle in. We're going to do a lot of interesting science. Science. What does science mean to you? Science to me is Google, Google, Google. No, science to me is the is the is almost like the study of study, the study of trying to understand something and applying certain data and certain principles to something to get a better understanding. Right. right. So you go through a process of like I am looking at a cup. I want to know if that cup actually exists in time and space and how, and what it is and what is it made out of? So I would test that cup for certain things or run it through a certain process to get a better understanding of it, to validate my assumption. Yeah. And that's, and that's pretty, I mean, that's pretty much that's pretty wrong. And that's what no, this show's about. No. no, no, that's, that's super, that's, that's really close. Right. So uh-huh. what's interesting is I think for a lot of listeners, And especially now as 
when you're a kid and you're taught what being a scientist is or how to do science, we're all taught the scientific method. And this kind of goes through this general structure. It seems to always have the same structure. And it's you have a research question, something you want to study. You develop a hypothesis. You determine what your experiment will be, what materials you'll need, what your controls and variables will be. You then do the study itself, determine if your hypothesis was supported or not not supported, and then you analyze the data itself and talk about what that taught you. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the general way we think of science. And that, for the most part, is true. However, it's obviously very simplified. So, for example, imagine you're doing a zoological study. And zoology, I think we would all agree, is, is science, is a type of science. Yes. Let's think about, Marie, we want to study gorillas in the wild. That, yeah? let's, let's do zebras. Okay, we want to study zebras in the wild. <laughs> so, one hypothesis might be, like, what would a hypothesis be that we could maybe study for zebras? Uh, that their stripes are a survival mechanism. Okay. Zebra stripes are a survival mechanism. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what's the type of test we could do to study that? Chase a zebra. <laughs> well, there's, so there's a couple different tests, right? There's a lot of different tests yes. we could do to study that hypothesis. Yeah. yeah. We could, um, we could do studies where we have, we could watch zebras in the we wild. Serve. Yes. Right. We could observe zebras in the wild and see, is there commonality between the zebras that uh, with patterns? Are the patterns similar to the zebras that survive encounters with predators? How do the zebras behave? Um, You know, is there something, you know, do our eyes notice something about the zebras movement patterns? Right. Right. There's a lot of there's a lot of things we could do there. Study their predators study the predators, right? We could study, we could study uh, lions or cheetah or, uh, you know, crocodile or Mm -hmm. any other sort of predator that would eat zebras. We could also study computationally what the patterns have in common or differences or how they behave with movement or how a predator's eyes, as we understand them, would look at the zebra pattern. Yes. So there's a lot of different ways. And suddenly, our relatively simple hypothesis has become exceptionally complicated. Yes. And so each of those tests needs a control, a variable, uh, a way of doing the experiment, a definition of what success is. And we haven't mm-hmm. really talked about that yet, but that's sort of another important port- part of this whole process. And so it's not ever as cut and dry. And we're oh. talking about something we're talking about something relatively not simple, right? Because that's a hard question to answer. Well, it's simple, it's just not easy. Right. It's right. It's a simple concept, but it's right. not an easy problem right. to solve. Right. You can imagine though that the bigger the problem or the less data there is about something, the more challenging it gets to come up with these sorts of these hypotheses, testing parameters, methodologies, and things like that. 
Mm-hmm. And the and the the other part of this that I think is confusing is that for a lot of science, you don't necessarily do that structure. So, for example, in my research work, when I was doing my PhD, I wanted to ultimately, you know, looking back on it, you can think the hypothesis I had was that loading these certain chemicals onto a material would capture more carbon dioxide than if I didn't. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, that was proven correct. And so we were able to publish it. And I I graduated with a PhD and everything else. And hooray, we did it. But that's not really, but that's not really what I was doing. I was loading the materials on to test that theory, that that hypothesis, I should say, not only the theory. Uh But every single test itself had their own hypotheses. Yeah. So, for example, like the loading of the material on there, that was a hypothesis. But I also had to think, well, did I actually load the material on there? So I had to do another experiment to verify that that hypothesis that I can load material onto my surface by doing X, Y and Z, that that was true. And it's not like, yeah, this is stuff that you can just look at and tell. Right. You can't just look at it with the naked eye and be like, yeah, I just uh, used some tape and I stuck it on there. I mean, right. I mean, this is a much more again, it, there's a whole set of like you were saying, like a whole set of process and validation to go behind that because it's not seen by the naked eye. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's, there's, and that's kind of why I guess a body of scientific evidence grows and why trust is such an important factor here. Because eventually like what Maria is pointing to, I can't, if I want to test something new, I can't spend all of my time testing that all of my machines I'm using to test my materials, that those are operating correctly, let's say. Or that they operate the right. way that I, th- I think they do. You can't right? start from scratch on every single thing every single time or else you'd n- nothing would ever happen. Exactly. So another important part of the scientific method that isn't part of that kind of simplistic view we get when we're in third grade mm-hmm. is the importance of peer review and the growth of a body of knowledge. Yes. But so I also think what you said, which is kind of less scientific, but equally important, which is trust. Like those are the things that validate and build trust and sort of, again, like the group assumption that this, I can trust a microscope because it has been calibrated to this and it's going to tell me this. And I don't have to revalidate all of those assumptions. Yeah. Now, normally, to be fair, you would revalidate the calibration. Okay, so you would recalibrate it, but you wouldn't question the calibration. Like, you wouldn't have to go back and be like, I don't trust this calibration, and I'm going to create my own, or I'm going to have to, you know, go through the whole rigorous process of coming up with a totally new way of calibrating something, right? I mean, like, there's some known trusted um, tools. I I want to call them tools, but like... No, yeah, like... like Structures. yeah. Yes, it's a, a kind of a very simplistic, a very simplistic view of this would be in the in the example of the zebra we gave before zebras exist. Yes. Right. Like that's an assumption we I'm making. agree <laughs> that zebras exist. That's an assumption we're making before we get to Africa. Right? We, and we don't know that's true because I've never seen a, and, well, I, I've seen a zebra in life because I've been to zoos and stuff. But you know what I'm saying? We assume. State. Those are fake. Deep state. No. Deep state. state. So. Right. Birds aren't real. Zebras are. <laughs> So another important part, another important part of the scientific process. And so, okay, as we're building this body of knowledge, Mm -hmm. some things become so foundationally important 
that we give them special titles. Now, I'm thinking of two things in particular. There are scientific laws, which mm-hmm. I'm sure you've mm-hmm. heard of, mm-hmm. right? The law of mm-hmm. gravity. And there are scientific theories. Mm-hmm. In common parlance, Marie, wh- what do you think a theory is versus a law? Um, a how, law do you, how do you think of those two so, things? So um, I would say that a law has been something that has been tested and proven numerous times, like gravity, right? Mm-hmm. And then a theory is something that has could have more than one possible explanation and is still being discovered. Okay. Close? Completely incorrect. Ah, sweet. At least on the theory part. Oh. Okay. This is a really important point of discussion here because a theory and a law are basically kind of the same thing. What? Now, in common, in the common world, we talk about things like a scientific or we talk about things like theory as if like, I, you know, I have a theory that the COVID vaccine is going to give me a, a microchip. That means Bill Gates can, you know, shock me every time I go to use my Mac to record the podcast. But that's that's not true. Right. That, that's not really what a theory is. And first off, it's not true because Bill Gates doesn't have that kind of power. But even it's if he not, does, he wouldn't be wasting his time with that. Yeah. Not on me. Um, <laughs> no, but it's it's not true because it's not. It's not the way that science views what a law is versus what a theory is. In fact, Marie, your description mm-hmm. of a scientific law is actually the description of a scientific theory. Oh, man. So. A scientific law is something that has been observed and quantified or described in a way to make it usable. All right. So the law of theory, the the law of gravity, Mm -hmm. right, is actually a mathematical equation that Ah. describes that describes the way that objects move when when in a gravitational field. So, for example, the law of gravity is essentially uh, every point mass or every mass is attracted to other masses by some force that is determined by the distance between them. Dig it. Does that yeah. does that make sense? Yeah, and it's observable. Exactly. So uh, yeah. mathematically, what that's what that would be written as is the force attraction of gravity is equal to some constant big G if it's out there in uh, space. Right. Mm-hmm. That's the general the general version of that multiplied by the masses of the two objects multiplied together. Divided by the radius between them squared. OK, a little light math. Yes. OK. What that means, essentially, is that you have two objects, a really, really big one and a really, really small one in space, right? The closer they get to each other, the greater the force between the two objects. Yes. So in other words, if you throw a baseball up in the air, right? Mm -hmm. Or if if you're in, let's, let's not do that. If you're in space... Because right? none of us know sports. Is that what we're... <laughs> <laughs> no, because it's, it's just, it's going to get too complicated if we start talking about a gravity, the gravity on Earth. Um, but 
if we think about like the the sun versus say Mercury versus the Earth, right? right? Mercury is closer to the sun. So Mercury feels a greater gravitational pull Pull, than the Earth does towards the sun. Yes. Okay. Yes. That's it. So a law is simply an observed phenomena, really. Dig it. Okay. 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 Oh, oh, it's you know, it's close. You were, you know, you and a theory, a theory is exactly what you said a law was. Okay. A theory okay. is a, a a concept that has been proven again and again through the scientific process. Mm-hmm. Right. So a good example of that is the theory of evolution. The theory of evolution has been proven again and again and again. Yes. By by studies on bacteria and animals and uh, anthropology and zoology and uh, archaeology and all these other fields that have kind of come together and exp- and shown the same results that we would expect if evolution was true. Yes. Okay. But then, why isn't ev- what's stopping evolution from being a law? It's 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 because evolution does. There are laws within evolution. Mm-hmm. Right. There's like, say, the law of the growth of bacteria. Right. Right. right, right that right, that right. mathematical mathematically would be a law. It's it's just parlance. It's just the way we describe them. Right. Because a theory is. A theory is more than a law is in some ways, a the- like people think that a theory eventually will become a law. It's actually it's not that's not true. Laws work within the framework of a theory. Right. They're more of the su- Yeah, they're more of like the supporting facts. Exactly. Uh, So Newton's theory of – or Newton's law of gravity Mm -hmm. works within Newton's overall framework for the way that objects moved in the universe. Right. But the law of gravity also works within the framework of the theory of special relativity or the theory of quantum mechanics. So laws can kind of work within each framework. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. I was asking about evolution just so we could, you know, say that evolution can be the law instead of a theory since it's still debated. No, well, okay. Right. So so here here's the general idea of what a theory is, right? So a theory is basically, so in other words, it's an explanation for the natural world. That yes. can be tested in different ways over time. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Okay. So a normal definition for a theory, kind of the general way that we think of it today, is that a theory makes uh, predictions that can be falsifiable. It is well supported mm-hmm. by a bunch of different studies and pieces of evidence and it is consistent with experiments that came before dig it dig it dig so it, dig in it. other yep. words a scientific theory like the theory uh the theory of let, let's not take the theory of evolution because it's a little that's a little <laughs> bit more complicated right but let's take the, let's take the theory of the germ the germ theory of disease uh, yeah We talked about how that theory came about in our series on the history of surgery. And 
before, if, if we remember, before the germ theory of disease was a thing, we thought that disease transported through bad uh, gases, right? Like miasma, this mm-hmm. sort of sickly odor that penetrated through and, and got into the body in some way. And before that, even we thought that disease was caused by a mismatch of humors in the body, that there was something, some kind of. Uh, Your mojo was off. Exactly. Yeah. Like your internal mojo was off, right? You didn't have enough oil or, you know, you didn't have enough phlegm or whatever, right? You didn't have enough phlegm. So the germ theory of disease came along and was able to explain. So, okay. First off, what started happening to break the, the miasma theory away? Or what happened to break the, the, the bodily humors theory away? What do we think? Well, they had some sort of random, you know, some they tried something randomly and it, it it was effective. So that's that's what built it up, right? But the thing that broke those theories was when they tried stuff and it didn't work. Oh yes, yes, right. Yes. So like the the bubonic plague, um, people are wearing masks filled with poppies or other you know uh, flowers to to smell good in the thought that it will stop the miasma from getting into their bodies. And it does nothing. On the other hand, soap does seem to do something. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, like how, how well, does not that? Based, yeah, not based on the idea of the of 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 the current time, right? Right. Not in not in the theory of miasma. That doesn't make any sense. Yes. Yeah. So okay, this other theory comes along then, the germ theory of disease that says I can explain that soap works. I can also include the things that worked with the miasma theory, like putting the sick on in quarantine. Why does putting them in quarantine work? Whereas, um, you know, if, if the miasma theory isn't true, well, because germs transport in the air or on surfaces or in water or whatever, mm-hmm. like the miasma theory said. However, it is not the smell. It is not this cloud that causes this. There are actually these tiny things that I'm seeing in the microscope. So suddenly this new theory includes and explains all of the stuff the previous theory said and all the new stuff that's coming out that made people think the old theory wasn't true anymore. Right. And so over time now, as more and more stuff happens... Right, as we get better and better at understanding how uh, disease spreads and we start looking at other things, new challenges to the germ theory of disease will happen. And the test of the theory and the reason that the theory stays around is if it's able to meet those challenges within its own framework of understanding. So if the germ theory of disease can explain all the new stuff that happens, then it'll stay. Right. But if it doesn't, it's it gets proven. Exactly. It gets disproven Mm -hmm. and then a new theory takes its place. And with that, (laughs) we're going to take our first break. (laughs) 
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. And we're back. So, one of my favorite ideas of a scientific theory is the th- the work of Karl Popper. Karl Popper had a very specific set of characteristics that he said determined a scientific theory. Now, this is coming from his Conjectures and Refutations, which if you haven't read it yet, I highly suggest go get a copy of it. Um, it's actually, there's a really good... Uh, it was a really good collection of philosophy of science texts that Popper's in. Um, I need to find it, actually. It's someplace, it's someplace here in my house, but I don't have it off the top of my head. But anyways, uh, this is what Popper said a scientific theory was like. Okay, so first, it is easy to obtain confirmations or verifications for nearly every theory if we look for confirmations. So two, confirmations should, on- should count only if they are the result of risky predictions. That is to say, if, unenlightened by the theory in question, we should have expected an event which was incompatible with the theory, an event which would have refuted the theory. So, every good scientific theory is a prohibition. It forbids certain things to happen. The more a theory forbids, the better it is. A theory which is not refutable by any conceivable event is non-scientific. Irrefutability is not a virtue of a theory, as people often think, but a vice. So let's dig well, a little bit a into little those different. So let's that's dig a little cool. bit into those. Let's dig a little bit into those top into those first four uh, characteristics. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So it is easy to obtain confirmations of a theory if we look for confirmations. What? Is, what, what? That's confirmation bias. Exactly. Yeah. It is a hundred percent confirmation bias. Right. So, again, if we thought that um, if we thought that something was true, um, penguins are aliens. Right. If we if we thought that that was true, it would be really easy to set up tests to show that that is that that is true. Yeah. Everything everything I tested, everything I tested would be proven. An example of a theory that often gets. An, an example of a theory that often falls trapped to this first problem is the ancient alien hypothesis, because uh. essentially what we're doing is we're looking for confirmations in archaeological evidence, but not actually trying to refute our theory. So, for example, um, you know, I go to Pumapunku and notice how perfect the lines are. That has to mean that aliens helped them build this or they had some advanced technology. There is no other explanation. There's no other explanation. I never even tried to refute that theory. Well, and I actively ignore any, any, anything that would uh, discount it. Exactly. Yes. So, 
Okay, the second one. Confirmation should count only if they are the result of risky predictions. That is to say, if, unenlightened by the theory in question, we should have expected an event which was incompatible with the theory, an event which would have refuted the theory. In other words, confirmation only works if we're able to really try hard to refute our hypothesis. Right, you can't say, well, the ancient people never said they weren't aliens. Yeah. So, exa- so for example, with our zebra theory mm-hmm. before, if we think, you know, we put zebras in a cage and we let panthers just kind of see if they notice the zebras. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a really hard, if, if the panthers just completely ignore certain zebras based on their stripes, that's a really, really good confirmation of our theory. Yes. Yeah, because yes. we we would not have expected that in a million years. Right. Okay. Right. So it's really strong. All right. Three, every good theory is a prohibition. It forbids certain things to happen. The more a theory forbids, the better it is. It's creating now, rules. It's creating its exactly. own rules. Exactly. It creates yep. structured rules. Yep. So, for example, the germ theory of disease. The germ theory of disease would suggest that if you wear a mask, you will not transmit a disease to someone else because germs can't get through that certain sized mask. Right. That's, again, a really, really good prohibition. Yeah. It's it, it forbids that from happening. And so by doing it, we can stay safe. Right. Yeah. Well, and also in the whole testing of it, it says it it creates your chain, right? Like you are limiting the options of what it can do by seeing what it truly is doing. Exactly. So it takes down the possible to what is the actual thing itself. So, and here really is my favorite one, (laughs) especially Mm -hmm. when working with, with kind of, you know, uh, kind of fringe theories and ideas like that. A theory, which is not refutable by any conceivable event is non-scientific irrefutability is not a virtue of a theory, but a vice. So a really good example for this is people, when they talk about things like the world is a simulation. <sighs> yeah. That this is all just a simulation, a simulated universe. Big old fake. Yeah. Yes. How would we ever refute that theory? Well, yeah. And this is, again, this is start when you're able to do these things. That's the important thing that I think, should also draw the difference of going into conspiracy, right? Like if you can't refute with, if you can't refute what happens is everything is sort of self-validating, then that's the slippery slope. Exactly, right? So with QAnon, for example, mm-hmm. every time QAnon gets something wrong, it's because- They, the they got state, it right, yeah. Right, the deep state won or- QAnon is just preparing us for something else. It's substantiation of everything else. Yes. Nothing ever refutes the underlying thought or theory that people have. Mm -hmm. So it's not, so it, so it, it cannot be a scientific theory by definition because it is irrefutable based on Popper's understanding and my understanding, frankly. No, that's, that's actually really like, I feel like that is, uh, not only a good addition, but like a timely one as well. Absolutely. In some ways, yeah. Oh, Carl, Carl Popper was a freaking man. Um, okay, so let's get into the next, the next, uh, the next three, okay? Yeah. So five, every genuine test of a theory 
is an attempt to falsify it or to refute it. Testability is falsifiability, but there are degrees of testability. Some theories are more testable, more exposed to refutation than others. They take, as it were, greater risks. So, um, what does that generally mean here? It means that if you're really testing a theory, if you're really testing some paradigm of science that we have, you are trying to refute it. You're trying to break one of those things it says can't happen, right? So if we yeah. think about um, a theory forbids something from happening, right? So mm -hmm. we can look at Newtonian mechanics. This is actually a really good example of that. So in, or, or rather, I guess, kind of the classical view of the atom, right? In the classical view of the atom, we would expect that you should be able to um, know with precision where at any given time an electron is and how fast it's moving. Because yes. electrons are just physical objects. They just, you know, they're, they're like they're like ping pong balls, right? They're just really small. And so you expect that as they're moving around, you should be able to know at any given point if you have enough computational power or enough you know, microscopic power or whatever, you should be able to know it's going, you know, I don't know, a hundred microns per second. Um, and it's going, you know, this, this way, right. It's going to the left or whatever left is in a three-dimensional sphere. <laughs> so <laughs> it doesn't make any they sense. They go left. But you know what, yes. you know what I mean? No, I know exactly it's, what you it's, mean. It's yeah. going in some direction and it's going with some speed. But right. actually, if we try to, if we try to do that, it, that's not true. That, that doesn't that isn't the case, which is a tremendous refutation of classical physical mechanics. So if you actually try to measure where an electron is, you end up not knowing how fast it's going. And if you try to measure how fast it's going, then you actually can't know where it is. That's that's like a crazy refutation. Right. And so that means that obviously classical mechanics breaks down at the quantum level. And so we need a new theory, right? The theory of quantum mechanics. So when people were trying to test classical mechanics, they were doing so to try to break that theory. Now, a little bit of a caveat here. A lot of the time, scientific discoveries happen by accident. So people are just kind of in a lab doing stuff. And they accidentally break a classical theory. Right. You know, so something something responds in a way that they weren't expecting. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then they kind of start digging into it and thinking, like, what the heck's going on here? You know, uh that that example of like the quantum mechanical worldview starting to impinge on the classical worldview, it's 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 such a big deal. And I don't think we really think about it because it's so those objects are so small, it's so hard to to think about that way. But imagine, you know, we're 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 working in a biology lab with the theory of evolution as our main thing. You know, we we all know evolution. We all know how it works and everything else. And then, you know, we have a bunch of penguins that we're studying for whatever reason. Because mm -hmm, they're and, aliens. Mm -hmm. Right. And those penguins are kind of hanging out and we keep the food. Uh, we keep our food bag up on the ceiling or, or near the top of the room because penguins can't fly. So they're never going to go get it. Yeah. Yeah. And then suddenly one day you come into the lab and the food bag is gone and, you, gone. and yes. you look at your uh, camera and it turns out that a penguin 
did fly. They can stack. Okay, no. They can. Well, no. no well, well no, no, no. Yeah, no. They can stack or they can fly yeah. or they can climb or, right? It, like, oh, my God, something is wrong here, right? Something right. is wrong about what I know about penguins. And maybe if it's a big enough deal, right, if the penguin really did fly, that mm-hmm. breaks evolution. Right. Right? The penguin learned to fly in, in not even a generation. It just spontaneously is able to fly suddenly. Yes. They're crazy. Is this nuts? Cats laying with dogs. Raining blood, Marie. It's nuts. All right. So, um, number six. Confirming evidence should not count except when it is a result of a genuine test of the theory. And this means that it can be presented as a serious but unsuccessful attempt to falsify the theory. So, again, you only take evidence proving a theory if it comes from a test trying to break it with data, yeah. right? Like with you data. have the back, you have the backup, like of, again, you're, it's not confirmation bias because you can prove it. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, it's, it's almost, you know, it is a kind of a really simple example. Of this is, uh, did you ever, uh, did you ever read that Reddit post about the guy who eats M&Ms by, Oh God, no. But okay, so he takes he gets like 15 MMs mm-hmm. and he uh shoots them at each other, like he flicks mm-hmm. them towards each other. Mm-hmm. And whichever MM makes it past the first round, like it doesn't crack, mm-hmm. he keeps that one and he eats the other one. And he just he just keeps doing this until he has a winner MM. So what does he do with the women winner MM? Does it go? I think he still it, eats it. Uh, so Oh, okay. Okay. I could but, really, this could be its own episode of my diatribe on this, but it's very strange. Go ahead. So, no, it's not strange. No. Dumb. All right. No. Okay, go so ahead. every, we can, we can both agree that person is very ill. Yeah. <laughs> or, um, or what is the true illness? Writing about it in Reddit? Or very bored. Very weird. Right. It's just strange. This is dumb. Okay. It's dumb and strange. Okay, so, sorry. Yes. Continue. This, the pop, the Popperian <laughs> view of science is kind of uh, like that. Every theory gets smashed, right? We keep right. trying to break. We keep trying to break our theories, right? And the theories that stick around, the best ones, are the ones that withstand everything we throw at them, right? They just stay. They stay standing, right? They right. continue to get stronger and stronger. Um, you know, yeah, it's and like they, they never break. If I may use a what I, a, 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 a humanities quote from uh, from Basquiat. Build the fort, tear it down. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yes. So. Which I now think f- is, I know I got to go double check. I have to, I have to try and break that because I'm pretty sure that's him. Anyways, continue. In an earlier version <laughs> of this episode, Marie, I said zebras had spots. I think you're fine. So <laughs> the final, the kind of final thing that Popper says is, is number seven here. Some genuinely testable theories when found to be false are still upheld by their admirers. For example, by introducing ad hoc some auxiliary assumption or by reinterpreting the theory ad hoc in such a way that it escapes refutation. Such a procedure is always possible, but it rescues the theory from refutation only at the price of destroying or at least lowering its scientific status. So finally, he says, one can sum up all this by saying that the criterion of the scientific status of a theory is its falsibility or refutability or testability. Interesting. So, so he's taking sort of human, like, 
human fallibility and ego into into account. Absolutely. Well, interestingly enough, uh, when this was going on, he was sort of thinking about um, Freud's theory of the mind. Oh, he, he was actually talking about uh, he was actually talking about is are these theories? I mean, are they scientific or not? Hmm. And so in this case here, this is really what Popper talks about as the essential kind of the thing that divides science and pseudoscience. Mm-hmm. Science can be refuted. And in fact, good science should be attempted to be refuted constantly. Whereas pseudoscience cannot be refuted because it's irrefutable mm-hmm. on its on its basis, because it is being confirmed without real tests going on. Or because it is being held up by ad hoc assumptions added after the fact. Ad hoc meaning for, for listeners that maybe don't know kind of like cobbling together, just putting in something to fix a problem. Yeah. Mm, So a mm -hmm. good example of a good example of that, you know, really is uh, let's take the story of Bob Lazar, right? Bob Lazar presents a theory to the world that the government, uh, he was a a secret, you know, scientist working in this, in this facility and the government knows about UFOs. There's all this secret military technology. Well, the more we learn about, kind of what the military knows about UFOs or even Bob Lazar himself, um, that, that story starts to fall apart, right? So, you know, Bob Lazar, it doesn't appear, went to university. Mm-hmm. It didn't appear to go to MIT. But so what ends up happening then is people who believe the story say, well, wait a second, he's talking about this crazy government conspiracy cover-up thing. What if the military just took all of his school records? Yeah, to... to, to um either to hide him or to delegitimize him. Yeah. Right. Another example of this actually comes from the world of uh, quantum mechanics and, and Newtonian mechanics. Um, when that distinction happened, the break between quantum and or the, the break between kind of Newtonian mechanics, which is the way we viewed the world before quantum and then quantum mechanics, there were a lot of people attempting for a long time to make sense of the universe still using Newtonian mechanics. They introduced stuff like uh, zero point energy systems, right? Vacuum energy, mm-hmm. or they introduced things like the luminif- the luminif- lum- luminiferous ether, Um to try to explain the, the things that we were seeing with quantum mechanics. Uh, and again, mm-hmm. it's just adding stuff for no reason. Yeah. And yeah. you can always make it, you can always make it fit. You can always make this stuff work. It, you know, it, it's just kind of, um, the, the issue is that if it, if it just fits, but there's mm-hmm. a better theory that accounts for more evidence out there, that's the theory you should move to. Well, and the interesting thing that you point out about this whole thing, again, is sort of going back to the fact that this is all done by humans, right? And what you're pointing out is a very human fallibility, right? Is that you don't want to be wrong and you don't want to have to change in some ways, right? Like you can't, the idea of it being something totally new is so foreign and sort of so scary that you backfill whatever you can to make the old thing fit and be still be right. Which again, like if it is a purely science and a purely kind of a data driven, um, object, uh, you know, objective world, you wouldn't have that. You wouldn't have that need. 
Right. In some ways. You know what I mean? That's what I think mm-hmm. is sort of, again, kind of in, also interesting about this. Right. Because a lot of it is like people not wanting people not wanting to acknowledge change or difference because what they've been doing or studying somehow becomes wrong, which isn't always necessarily the case. But it's also kind of the emotional, psychological reaction. What you're actually describing is a idea that was put out by the philosopher Thomas Kuhn in like 1962. And. What Kuhn said, it's in his work, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which in my opinion is one of the most important philosophy of science books and really history of science books kind of ever written. Um, you know, if, if I was asked, you know, how to teach science in schools, this would be a book that I would I would start introducing to students at like the high school level, um, along with Karl Popper, because it's so important. It's so, so important. So, all right. What this book basically says is exactly what you were just describing. The fact that Popper's work, although it kind of gets close to the idea of science being a uh, something that happens, you know, in the world of people, mm-hmm. right? That a lot of this sort of work seems to ignore that. That science is put up as this sort of paradigm that happens regardless of people. Now, Popper and Kuhn actually were working at about the same time. Um, that book we talked about with uh, uh, on Karl Popper, that was published around 19, right around the same time as this work um, was published. So what Kuhn basically kind of says is that science occurs, There's Kuhn essentially says that there's periods of science that are what he calls normal science where people are working under normal kind of theories that are stable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's periods where things are pretty, pretty normal. They just kind of move ahead and and we're all pretty happy with the way things are going and people make discoveries, but they're all within the framework of a major theory. And then there's moments where there is a revolution so suddenly a test comes out that breaks everything. And suddenly there's lots of these tests. Mm-hmm. Stuff starts mm-hmm. piling up that seems to say, mm-hmm. well, no, no, nothing, nothing kind of happens here. So to kind of reiterate here, you go from a phase or an area that's kind of called the pre-paradigm. So there's no consensus on a theory. Um, there's a bunch of random kind of theories and ideas going on and nothing, you know, some stuff happens, but it's really, there is no common body of knowledge that exists. Right. Then normal science starts to really happen as that body of knowledge is built. So there's consensus within a scientific body or discipline. Ideas start happening And some anomalies, like some weird things, start to pop up. But for the most part, they're able to be handled by the framework of normal science. Now, over time, if enough of these anomalies happen or big enough anomalies happen, you go into a crisis mode. So in that crisis mode, scientists are really trying to understand what what is happening. Why are our theories wrong? Why are our tests not working the way we think they are? Right. Then you finally have the paradigm shift or the scientific revolution where 
the assumptions of the field, the body of knowledge is reexamined by a theory that now can explain the anomalies and the old stuff as well. And finally, you have post-revolution, a period where, again, the new paradigm or the new kind of set of theory thinking um, becomes the standard. And so, again, now science returns to normal science. And over time, these cycles happen repeatedly. Yeah. And those cycles are like anything else. Like that cycle is every cycle, right? I mean, that cycle is everything, practically. That could be, you know, that talks about history, that talks about everything. Now, what he talked about, though, was essentially that the paradigms before and after the shift Mm -hmm. are must, to, to fit this mold, they are incommensurable. So in other words, they don't, they don't fit with each other, right? They cannot work together. Right. But there will, though, be people that, stick to the old theory. So one of the important points of this, of this, uh, one of the important points of this is that clearly if you're going to have a a paradigm shift, you have to have in some ways the loss of the previous standard bearers. Yes. We have to change. It has to change. Exactly. Because otherwise, uh, Otherwise, you're going to end up with what Popper would have called uh, these kind of people that want to. They exactly they want to verify. They want to make this test work. They want to add in ad hoc stuff, right? right? Or or Kuhn kind of talked about the verificationists, these people that thought that it wasn't falsifiability, but it was it was verification of study that was important, right? Yeah, right. So it's a really it's it's a really interesting thing that you know the history and the way that this happens is is. it's not always simple. It's not always easy, right? And it's not always, it's not always, frankly, nice necessarily. Yeah. Yeah, no, um, it can't be, right? I mean, disruption, that is like, I hate the word disruption in the modern sense, but that is true disruption is that it has to disturb and take apart what has come before it or else it's absolutely. not valid. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay. Listeners, this is the framework by which we are going to understand scientific theories this season. This is the way we're going to talk about them, maybe with not so much philosophy involved, but this is the way that we're going to look at these things. We're going to look at them through the kind of sociological or historical lens that Kuhn talks about, but also through the the idea or the, the, the worldview that Popper espouses where falsifiability is really the be-all end-all of a scientific theory. And so we're going to start that off with a series that we have kept saying we're going to do. And we actually did one in the past, but we swear we're going to do it this time. Time travel. Well, we traveled back and we did that one. Yeah, it'll be fun. It's going to be great. Dear listeners, thank you so much for listening. Happy holidays. We hope you had such a good one and uh, we love you all. Yeah, We love you guys. Stay safe. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at madscientistpod or at teamgiantsquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, 
and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Our web design is done by Desdemona Howard. Woo-hoo. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. Again, let's take the example of, of zebras. Mm-hmm. I'm setting up a test to show that zebra... Uh, spots ward off predators. They're stripes, but okay. They're stri- they're stri- sorry, spots. They're stripes ward off predators. <laughs> spots may not do it, man. Yes. No, spots yes. won't do it. Um. No, wait, we have to redo this section. This is really bad. That's a terrible example I gave. Um, You're just embarrassed. You said spots. I am really embarrassed. I said spots. <laughs> um, <laughs> Come on, that's awesome. Henry is off doing something now. <laughs> what a time to be alive. Jake, 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 Jake. Okay, sorry, I'm back. Ooh. Oh, Marie. What's going on? You okay? Yes. Oh. Okay. In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't come that on. bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on CandairPodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network.